Hey, Jordan, what's up? Oh, Rob, I'm just sipping the tea. Oh, yeah. What? Care to, care to yeah. spill that? That's kind of interesting sounding. Uh, I would be happy to. I don't know if you heard, but uh, the gray lady, the New York Times ran a story this weekend. Oh, okay. Got their hands on uh, Donald Trump's tax returns. Yeah, and I was actually coming to you right now to bring, bring this up. It's oh, incredible that you mentioned this. Yeah. Because wow. I've been, I looked at this story. Obviously, it was a huge story. Everyone was talking about it. And uh, I've been, uh, you know, obviously, we need to figure out a line of attack, how we can use this against Trump. And I think I've got the perfect way to uh, to go after him on this stuff. Yeah. Like, talk about how he's, uh, this is a system that, it's, it's a system where the rich exploit the tax code, right? No. No, what I, what I was going to go with is just saying, like, he's broke. This guy's broke. He's a loser. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. He's in My debt. I, uh, yeah. He's not, <laughs> what an idiot. Yeah. What a loser. And like, this is the kind of thing that like, no one's going to be able to relate to this, right? If we just like hammer no. on this, he's broke. Uh, he's in, he's mm-hmm. massively in debt. He overstates right? as well. He's yeah. not one of the good billionaires. No. Right? There's, there's plenty of good billionaires out there and he's not, he's just like a pretend fake billionaire. And I, this is the oh. way, this is the way I think we need to really hammer him. And I think it's going to really, his base is going to really, appe- this is going to be very appealing to all these types. That's fantastic. I saw a tweet the other day from Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project that was like, I was talking to a billionaire, a real billionaire in Florida, and he said they all laugh at Trump for not being as rich as them. <laughs> and oh my God, yeah. what a talk about a winning message. Holy I know. shit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, those those voters that that switched from Obama to Trump in the sort of rust belt states that that won Trump the election when they realize that all these New York billionaires that they all don't like Trump and he's not part of that crowd and they all actually hate him and he's actually mm-hmm. not one of these people they're going to be they're going to switch right back to to Uncle Joe uh and I think we you know it's a September surprise I think we're going to be able to sew this thing up it's it's really exciting mhm yeah, I, I think it's just it shows that Trump is is not a good business person. He can't handle his money. He overstates his wealth. These are all things that nobody really else can relate to. No, definitely not. Absolutely. So I think I'm I'm feeling really good because you know there's a couple of things going on lately. Feeling a little bit unsure, but seeing some some poll stuff that that has not been inspiring a ton of confidence. But now I'm thinking with this, uh, we're gonna really be able to nail him to the wall. And I think this is what's gonna sew this thing up for Joe Biden. They got him. What What are you working on? Because I see you have something there. It, like, there's the debates tonight. Do you have anything for that that you're uh, that you're thinking about? Uh, yeah. So I launched uh, a new Twitter account at Truth. At Truth. Very yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, what's What's the deal with that? It'll offer real time fact check, and um, you know, I think once Ooh. we once people who are uh, currently uh, you know believing things like uh, every Democrat is a lizard. And, uh, you know, yeah. that, that they, they think that Just fact check that. Yeah. I think once they see the, the strong salient voice of at truth on Twitter, I think they'll do a 180. Um, yeah. they'll, they'll no one's thought to tell, to say that Trump's a liar over the last four years. It's yeah, like, we're I doing think it they now, left but it's like on the table in 2016. Yeah. Very strange. Very, very strange. Uh, my main thing also with the debate tonight, I tried to talk to Biden's team about this. I mean, I, they said that they they saw me and heard me, so I hope they understand. But mm-hmm. what I was saying is like, if you're going to point out these kind of factual inaccuracies, uh, the way Trump you know, fabricates this stuff, if if Biden could throw in a couple of like a, have you no shame, sirs, oh, or possibly like a how dare you kind of a thing, mm-hmm. I think 
that's another thing that you turn on NBC, CNN, you never see that kind of stuff. And it's 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 amazing to me that no one's thought to nail Trump with this kind of a line. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, if Biden really hits that at the perfect time, it's just a really good, have you no shame, Mr. President, sir. He'll have to resign right after that because I don't see how he can recover from it. That's right. Okay, hello, hello and welcome. It's the Insurgents episode 41. Uh, Rob Rousseau here along with Jordan Yule. Jordan, what is up? What's going on? Hey, uh, I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids. Cool, and I feel Remember great. That when Hillary said that, yeah. that was cool. Bringing that back. Yeah, yeah, let's do I think we should <laughs> revive it. People haven't heard it enough. Yeah. What? What's the... Okay, so this is the new gaming connection. Like last time it was Pokemon Go to the Polls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe Biden this time going to be like, I think that there is a Cheeto among us right now. <laughs> Holy fuck, dude. You <laughs> In the White House. The you just do that on the fly? <laughs> yeah, that's right off the right off the dome piece, as they Fire say. Fire that one off on uh, Twitter. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I may have to do that. <laughs> um, anyway, it's uh, it's good that you're doing well. Um, I just wanted to go back to what we were kind of talking about at the beginning there, the whole t- Trump tax thing. And mm-hmm. it is really easy to just like dismiss that and say like, oh, you know, no one really cares. And I like, I understand that. But I think the point of saying that is not to, um, you know, try to help Trump because it is terrible that he's he's this fucking tax cheat and he doesn't pay taxes like that is that is objectively fucking terrible it should infuriate everyone mm-hmm. and when, when we make fun of that kind of thing you know i'm not i'm not trying to do that to to suggest that it's not wrong or that it's bad but it's just so infuriating how uh people in the media or people in the democratic party seem really reluctant to make the connection with um you know that that's the way that rich people uh, act with the tax code. This is how people that have money act. This is how they become billionaires. Um, when right. you're a bill, when you're a rich asshole like Trump, money is really not real. None of this shit matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're poor, it's very, very real. Um, it would be nice for someone to kind of make that connection instead of trying to suggest that Trump's this like uniquely bad actor in the system and not try to tie that together with the, the way that rich people abuse uh, the system. Um, and this, this is not it. This is like, not just a United States thing. This happens all over the place. It happens in Canada, plenty of Canadians in the Panama papers as well. But of course, typical to America, this is where it's really taken to the, to its, uh, to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's just, it's infuriating that no one it, it seems to want to make that connection. And you realize it's because that would be an indictment of the very people that are funding, uh, the democratic party and then the media. So you can see why, but it's fucking annoying. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a perfect opportunity to be like. Uh, hey, this is a tax code that is easily exploited by the wealthy. Um, this isn't an economy that's working for you. This is, And that's a line that they like to trot out in the primary. Everyone does. I and mean, I'm sure we'll hear it tonight. More fa- a more just and fair playing field. Things like that. But when it comes down to it, when we see, here's a stark example of that. This guy is your political opponent. The response, especially from people who are running types of organizations that do that lead on messaging, uh, are, are widely praised by um, corporate media and pundits as being, you know, innovative, like the Lincoln Project and things like that. The response was, "Oh, he isn't as rich as he says he is. He's in debt." 
that should i mean yeah that's bad like that you can make the argument around national security concerns that like the debt is is easily um exploitable like that's if you even know anybody who works uh in a, in a position where you have to get that like they, they they check your bank account frequently to make sure and like your your financial records frequently to make sure you're not in debt because that's an easy way to exploit somebody um so beyond that the conversation should have focused on he is like he is a, he is a, one of many people who are at the top who exploit this system and take advantage of that tax code and it was very rich to see again people like lincoln project weighing in on this when they were champions of george bush <laughs> And the Bush era tax cuts that made that kind of stuff possible. <laughs> it was so, it was so we love darkly it. ironic. We love it, don't we, folks? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just that. Bush. It was, you know, it was decades of this kind of stuff. But Bush implemented a tax code uh, that Obama continued uh, in the wake of the, the financial collapse that disproportionately benefited the wealthy. Yeah. But I mean, with Obama's case, that was only because the dastardly Republicans were there to to block what he really wanted to do, which was the, <laughs> you know, this really redistributive uh, ec- economic course, system. But he, unfortunately, his hands were tied. Yeah, and he just t- had to carry on that exact same system. Really unfortunate. He had to fill out the Wall Street. He just had to do it. Yeah, it's very disappointing stuff that that's oh, well. how that, that shook out. Yeah, nothing we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was, that, uh, obviously it is a big story. I don't want to downplay it. You know, it, it fucking sucks that, um, Trump paid seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes in, yeah, in two thousand sixteen or whatever it is. And it should yeah. infuriate you, but um that that's a symptom. Like like everything Trump, it's a symptom of a, a very corrupt and atrophied system that really mm-hmm. needs reform. And that's why it's fucking uh really frustrating that the Democratic Party doesn't really seem interested in reforming that system. They're just saying orange man bad, we need to vote him out and then continue the exact same system the way it is i mean even mm-hmm. biden biden put out a tweet last night that was like you know i don't want to i don't want to punish anyone but i think maybe the rich should probably pay their fair share and it's like whoa buddy calm down on the on the communist rhetoric there man you're you're really scaring people with the with your, the, the forcefulness with, with which you're denouncing this very obviously <laughs> rotten system yeah the, the leading that with a caveat was so disheartening to see it's like <laughs> If it's if it's a Bernie tweet or even a Warren tweet, it's just like they should pay their fair share. This is wrong. Him is oh, I don't want to you know I don't want to have to do this. Maybe less of that right now when half the country yeah. is you know struggling to to find work or uh, you know a third of the country can't pay their rent. Maybe there shouldn't be that kind of unease when a wealthy person is exposed uh, as not having paid taxes. You know the average tax payment for somebody in 2016 ranged around 10,000 to 15,000 and Trump's paying what 750 that year in other years he's paying nothing like that is a pretty easy layup if you're running against the guy hey this should end not well I don't want to do anything like why why would you do that (laughs) if not to avoid upsetting other wealthy people who are backing you that's that's extremely frustrating and troubling when we think about what the consequences would be or the ramifications of a Biden election would be yeah, and it doesn't give me a ton of hope that Biden's actually going to do anything about this beyond just like a few timid, a little bit of timid rhetoric like this. Yeah, it'd be like more um, incrementalism. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen where that where that has brought the United States of America over the last couple of decades. Uh, right. Nowhere good. Yeah, but, I think uh, people should, 
it should be on groups in that or in his orbit and people around him to start changing the rhetoric from okay yes that we you know if, if we want to do that this is the first step there's never any conversations around what the next steps are going to be you know it's always like then we push biden left and then that, that just kind of like where it begins and ends no 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 we should start to talk about what comes after that if the next candidate runs like if if kamala runs or or somebody else um you know follows him another democrat what then what are our expectations then i'm i i i, I think it's it's really foolish that people just kind of begin another conversation with we just have to get him in because we have to get trump out and then the work begins what does that work look like it's a reasonable question yeah well it just helps trump to ask that question though so you gotta you gotta watch out for that oh by saying this i'm sure that means i want trump to win so exactly yeah this is actually a pro-trump podcast unfortunately we didn't even realize it that's how pro-Trump it is. It's Jesus very subtle, Christ. very subtly pro-Trump. I, I'm um, so tired of that. I'm sure our listeners are too. Like you're allowed to think yeah. about these types of things long term. You're you are allowed. You are allowed to think that Biden could be better, and not. And you should. You're free from being uh, <laughs> smeared as wanting Trump to win. It's so unbelievably pathetic that we're in this moment. Yes, and um, so speaking of speaking of the Democratic Party just giving up preemptively. This was really incredible the this week, the Supreme Court discourse that like if you just take us from where we were last week, we talked about this with the law boy. And, you know, I asked for your input about where what you know what you would do if you were kind of like in charge of the response to this kind of you had to really like leave it all on the field kind of approach, pull out whatever stop you can to ensure this. And this is what you just said really coincides with what the Democrats have been saying for years about the Supreme Court. Like we, we have, we cannot allow them to, to seat these new justices. We have to do everything. You have to vote for the Democratic Party because that's the only thing that matters. And now basically the Democratic Party spent the last week being like, well, not much we can do about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've pretty much holding all the cards. So uh, all these kind of extreme options that we were kind of exploring, packing the court or these other, these other options that they could maybe use to grind this to a halt. Eh, you know, it's not really going to work. So too bad. I guess we're just going to, you know, get him next time. We'll get him in the next, next 20, 30 years, I guess. That, that's basically their, been their response to, um, <laughs> to, uh, this upcoming Supreme Court battle. And it's just, yeah, like, if you've been following American politics for a long time, you're used to the Democratic Party capitulating instantly. But I think this was, was shocking even to me because it's just like mm-hmm. everything that you've said about this issue for the last, many years as long as i've been watching this uh now it's your time to prove how important it is and it's like well no did nothing we can do too bad sorry yeah but the thing Incredible. is there are things that they can do that's the thing that's what's so frustrating <laughs> politico laid out basically every option this week in an article uh, about schumer and the the pr- proposed tactics and what they're thinking about implementing to to address this and it ranges from, you know, procedural roadblocks, like, you know, just making every vote more difficult, adding more time to everything, making them have a quorum or like a certain amount of like roll call for everything. It's a bunch of like dry procedural like rules of order type stuff, but it slows the process down a lot. The one thing that they can do, uh, there's two things that they can do, actually. War powers resolution, which would automatically prompt the Senate to take it up and impeachment. And you think about the Democrats in the House right now, and you think about the makeup. And we just, I mean, this is an issue that that connects with this show pretty closely because, I mean, I worked on the uh, esports recruiting amendment, 
and saw 100 plus Democrats vote with Republicans to kill it. Like that just reflects this bipartisan defense of uh, military contractor, military contractors and military budget in general. So war powers resolution would be one way to slow it down. Impeaching uh, Barr or Trump would be another one way to do it. Trump would be emoluments. Like the guy is very clearly enriching himself through his private properties with, you know, by traveling there frequently, um, you know, people outside people are, are catering to him by staying at his at, at his hotels and uh, resorts and that kind of shit. And this um, isn't like a conspiracy theory. This is like yeah, this, this is like, like this the easiest one. Yeah, it's so fucking yeah. easy. But sh- but the, to do that, that's a standard where like then you start to raise questions about everyone else in Washington's dealings, and that opens up the door for people like Feinstein, people like Pelosi, people like Schumer, people who are very wealthy now. Through the, throughout their time in Congress. And then the magnifying glass starts to focus on them. And they don't want to do that. So we're being told this is a fight for our lives. This is the biggest fight ever. And all cards are on the table. All We're taking all the arrows out of the quiver. And then when it comes down to it, it's, okay, we'll delay it by a week. And then you just vote closer to the election. And that's it. <laughs> and then all these talking points really start to, start to seem hollow. Everything that they claim that they stand for, to the average observer, I think, will really start to, you know, just disintegrate. Because it's no longer about, like, fighting for reproductive rights. It's no longer about fighting for workers. It's no longer about protecting uh, even just, like, the closest thing to (laughs) even a swing justice in the Supreme Court, because that's it. It's six to three, and they're doing everything they want. And that also means we're not going to get a Green New Deal. We're also not going to get Medicare for All, because no matter what we pass, all Republicans Republicans are going to do is just challenge it, take it to the Supreme Court, and get it killed that way. So then voting doesn't even matter. So that doesn't set up a great situation, I think, for, <laughs> in my understanding of it, that seems like probably not good. No. Right? Am it's I It's extremely disheartening. Sometimes yeah. I'm a little... And it's people that are <laughs> fucking old. Like, that's, I don't care if it's ageist, because it's, it's people who aren't going to live to see the consequences. That's, yeah. that's what sucks. Those are people, people who are making these decisions are not going to see the consequences. Diane Feinstein is what, 90? 89 or 90? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's Something. one of the most influential Democratic senators on this issue specifically. Like this, is, and she's yeah, you know, now nah, we just—it's just not, not the time to do that. <laughs> okay, cool. When is the time? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. There surely there is a time eventually. Uh, I was kind of my understanding what this was actually the time. Like this was the time that you've been kind of preparing everyone for. Uh, that was my understanding, and yep. so that—that's what I mean. Though it's just—it was just crazy this week to see them completely just roll over on that and just like take take every single option that they have off the table immediately um mm-hmm. and it seems like just like with Kavanaugh they're going to they're going to you know kick their feet about it and and you know go through the theatrics go through the sort of political theater of it and then just fucking accept the result and say well we'll get him next time and it's like cool good job yep <laughs> um anyway we talked a little bit more about this with our guest this week David and Henry, the Gravel teens of the Gravel Institute, which which uh, just launched this week. It was very, very cool and exciting. Um, I don't even know if they're teens anymore. It's probably condescending that I'm still referring to them as as the Gravel teens, but I guess yeah. it's just kind of stuck in my head now. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. Embarrassing. Yeah, but we talked about uh, about this issue. Um, it got a little bit dark. I think they've been doing a lot of thinking about uh, the sort of uh, extremely dark path that America is uh, undertaking right now, and the sort of 
the uh, lack of options to try to like slow down or reverse that kind of decline. But uh, it, it, their their new project, the the Gravel Institute, it is it is pretty exciting. Uh, I thought their their initial video that came out this week, the sort of introductory video, their their vision for what they want to do in the future, I think is really exciting and inspiring. Uh, and it was great. It was great to talk to them, even though it was sometimes a little bit depressing. Yeah, but I mean, like their I, outlook isn't unique or proprietary. Like that is that is a very common sentiment among younger voters. And like justifiably so, because like they they see, they could see the writing on the wall. Things do not look good for them going forward. And you've got people in their seventies, eighties, or nineties in some cases dictating the future for them. And that's got to be incredibly frustrating. So they're trying to, and the, and the right has a long term investment and has had a long term investment in narrative shaping and media control and playing the refs and all this kind of stuff and indoctrination. They're trying. They, they're institute is designed to take on one of those pillars the, the uh prager you which their videos are everywhere and it, i mean that we need like hundreds of these types of things because the right has a complete and total domination online and this kind of stuff through like the daily wire and all of their individual figureheads to people in the daily caller and breitbart and this whole right-wing media ecosystem must be challenged and it sucks that we lost something that you know as not not as left as you or I or our listeners might have liked, but like think progress was really instrumental in publishing a lot of research. Faz Shakir, uh, former yeah. Bernie campaign manager, came out of there. Uh, Judd, who does a, a bunch of good accountability stuff on Facebook and, and Fox News and things like that. Now his popular info stuff. He was there for a while. There's a, a bunch of good reporters. and They did a lot of like good labor reporting. Then their union was ultimately decimated. And it was just gutted. And then they shut down the site. Like that's because of editorial uh conflicts that's like that's extremely frustrating because that just weakens the left overall you have to think about this kind of stuff in an ecosystem because the right certainly does we're not always going to agree with people like crooked media like just like the right there's always inter conflicts between these types of places and that's fine but at the end of the day they all know what the objective is it's to crush the left um i just th th i think you could make the argument that some places on the left punch left more than they should i think it's a fair argument yeah. But I do think we need to prop up more things like the Gravel Institute um, and start to build out more infrastructure like that on the left. And I think, like, you know, discontents like we're part of, opt out like we're part of, those are initiatives that are building out, up and out uh, leftist content that I, I think people should check out because this is a long term, a long term effort. Yes, I agree. And actually, if this, that's a good opportunity for me to plug something that I've been working on. This is kind of a Canadian thing. I'm sorry to hijack hijack our American politics podcast wow. with my, my Canadian nonsense. Um, but that's something that I've been working on from my end as well. Uh, something called the Harbinger Media Network, which has just launched the last week. Uh, we just launched our, our crowdfunder. And this is just a media network of Canadian left podcasts um, to do the exact same thing you're describing, but here in Canada, uh, which is kind of exciting. I think the main reason, because um, when you look at the sort of media landscape in Canada, it's much, much smaller than the United States. Uh, there's much less sort of corporate influence. It's not there, it's there, but it's nowhere near the same extent. And the exciting thing about the Harbinger Media Network that we're working on right now 
uh, is that I think there's an actual opportunity in Canada to really like genuinely compete with mainstream media here uh, and the emerging far right, which is also very well funded. And that's that's also uh, picking up a lot of steam here as well. Um, so the, it's all part of a larger ideological project, uh, but I did just want to do a quick plug for that because it's very exciting. The launch was this week and it was really cool. Uh, so if you want to check out that more, um, you can visit www.harbingermedianetwork.com. And I'm sorry for hijacking the, the intro with my, with my plug, but it, it is really cool. I was very excited to launch that. Um, but as I mentioned, it's all part of this like larger ideological project, which kind of extends past international lines. You know, who knows what, what impact it's going to be able to make. But I think in terms of like, I feel like it's a, it's important that we're all sort of pulling in the same direction on this. Um, and that's why I was happy to talk to, uh, fuck. <laughs> that's why I was happy to talk to David and. I'm going to let you figure this one out on your own. God damn it. <laughs> I actually don't know. I want to say Aaron again. It's not Aaron. David and Henry. That's what. That's why it was Henry. It's not Aaron. There is no what is, Aaron. What am I getting that? It's David and Henry. That's. I don't know. That's why I wanted to talk to uh, David and Henry from the Gravel Institute. It's really really cool what they're working on. Aaron couldn't make it. It's such a bummer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We can stop <laughs> doing that now. Um. But uh, okay. So the debate's starting in 15 minutes. I know you have to go and get to that. So let's just. Uh, uh, let's just get to our interview with the Gravel teens uh, <laughs> right now. Uh, the Gravel Institute, very, very exciting. Uh, you're going to really enjoy what they have to say. They're going to be joining the show right after this. here with David and Henry from the Gravel Institute. David and Henry, welcome to the show. Now, um, I know I know you got a lot going on right now. I know you're very busy. There's a lot of stuff for us to get to. I don't know if you're familiar with the format of this show. We like to kick things off with a little chit-chat, a little idle chit-chat. So what I need to ask you is, do you game and what are you, what are you playing right now? What, mm-hmm. what kind of gaming you got mm-hmm. going on right now? Oh, yeah. Uh- I, I like to say I'm a, I'm a reformed gamer. I'm a, I'm an ex, you know, I still go to AG meetings in, okay. uh, in church basements to talk That's about, good. you know, once a gamer, always a gamer, they say, but uh, <laughs> we all have to support each other you actually. Know? So as the quarantine started, actually, David and I, we had a group of friends. We set up a group for playing CSGO and we oh, had nice. a hugely good time doing it while everyone was at low enough levels that we could only play casual. And then we started playing competitive and I think we got clean wiped like nine times yeah, in a row. It was kind of a disaster. And it was over for us. I think we were done after that. But the last thing I played actually just the other day, I was playing this game Control. Uh, and oh, I, that looks really good. Yeah, I don't know if I... David, I, I meant to show it to you the other day. But yeah, one no, you mentioned it, yeah. One incredible thing about this game is that it captures the aesthetics of a mid-century faceless American government bureaucracy absolutely perfectly. And the funny thing is that I feel like part of the most notable thing or maybe even the most notable legacy about those bureaucracies, the FBI, CIA, whatever, is the kind of brutalist buildings and offices and wood paneled structures that they kind of left behind almost that, that you have in cityscapes, you know, this kind of style of American state, you know, architecture and office building. 
And it's interesting because in the game Control, it's about, I mean, I, I would bet to say sort of haunted house office. That's a kind of extremely lame way of put, putting it. But the story very much revolves around the actual architecture and the idea of just the kind of how exactly do you build structures that have something to do with authority or, you know, human government. It's a kind of interesting idea where the setting itself really reflects the themes of the game. Mm. Yeah, I'm playing, uh, I'm not, I'm not really doing that whole intellectual thing. I just play Counter-Strike. Uh, trying, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was trying to, I was trying to play, uh, like Crusader Kings 3, but it's really complicated. I, I don't really get it. So I start. I tried to start doing Crusader Kings yeah. 2, but that's also super complicated. Like, I, I just don't really get how to do things in it. Um, no, same. I also tried it. It seems, I like the idea of it. It yeah, seems kind of cool. Yeah, it like an incredible idea, as as, yeah. Yeah, as soon as I kind of tried to log on, I was like, I don't understand anything about this. And this is confusing and frightening to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like everything I hear is that, like, a lot of my friends are playing it. And that it's, like, a brilliant, like, incredible game. Like, they say, oh, this is one of the best games I've ever played. It's, like, super addictive. But, like, I tried to do anything, and it, it's like you have a million options at the same time. I don't know how to do things. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't really play that. Um, uh, I was trying to get into Civ 6, but then that's not, I'm not, not so good at it. So I, I just play Civ 5 and Counter-Strike. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm getting actually really good at Counter-Strike. Uh, Henry was, was telling me to get a mouse, and now that I have a mouse, I'm actually... Yeah. That was why we kept losing. He was playing on a trackpad. Yeah, that was that was mistake <laughs> number one. Yeah, that doesn't sound great. Yeah, that's not an ideal uh, pro elite gamer setup. No, people who've been playing that game for like a decade or or longer, like their aim is is cracked. It, right. It, it's it's like it's a great way to meet people too. Like you meet people from like all over the world with weird opinions, and it's like you know you, you kind of form like a weird like. Uh, like a weird sort of friendship with them, you know. It's it's pretty nice. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. That, yeah, that's those are my closest friends. My my Counter Strike uh, teammates. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to reach out for human connection any way we can in this oh, yeah. uh, this pandemic yeah, and just you know our disconnected, uh, atomized society in general. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, like. Like that, that's the, like, that's like the real, um, like the real, uh, Henry talks about this a lot, but like the real crisis, like right now is just like the huge tidal wave of like loneliness and depression. I don't know if you guys saw this, but like suicides and drug overdoses, particularly for, uh, especially for young people are like way above the, uh, the normal, uh, amount. Like it's actually really worrying. Even like suicidal ideation and just like those kinds of. Oh, yeah. Not that I would know. I'm very mentally healthy, so I, I have know nothing about that. But that's what I've read, anyways. Is there's things like that? Yeah, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it on the street. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah, no. I mean, I remember there was um, there was something that said that uh, suicidal ideation among young people is like 25 percent in the last. I think this was like back in July or so. But in the last month, it's 25 percent. I think the previous statistic on it had been that it was about 10 percent over the past year. So it's, uh, it's really yeah, this bad. Is, I yeah. believe the specific uh, statistic is the uh, the specific statistic is the percentage of people 18 to 24 that express that they've had some level of suicidal ideation in the last three months. And that was at 25 to 30 percent in this study that we were talking about. Yeah, sorry, sorry to weird, get on I, that immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with, you know, our 
economic system or, you know, some of the way that we've organized our society or anything like that. It's probably just a coincidence, but it yeah. would be interesting to investigate that. I don't know, there was some kind of connection know if, you, there. if you've seen this, but um, the subreddit r slash um, unemployment. Oh, that's very depressing. Yeah, it's mm. like some of the grimmest reading because like people are like openly saying like, yeah, like I think I'm going to kill myself. And it's like there's like like almost certainly we're not getting a stimulus until at least January. Um, and, uh, I mean, like, honestly, probably later than that. Um, but like, it's just like, it's so dark. Yeah. I'm sorry to get on that. That's, that's just a really dark. Talk. <laughs> no, I mean, well, have they, why haven't they just like, uh, you know, considered feeling better or going, uh, to the gym? Yeah. You know, that should solve the problem, yeah, right? You could just get a new job. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't, the, I don't see what the big deal is personally, but they could right. work at at the three remaining jobs at uh, Amazon and uh, yeah. OnlyFans. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> David and I have had a long running uh, conviction that you know this is actually a kind of broad based social collapse. You know, it's not just one part of our society; it's a kind of hollowing out almost, where all the facades, the appearances, the storefronts remain, but the kind of civilization underneath it is getting eaten away and one thing we say is the three remaining american institutions when all this is over will be amazon OnlyFans, and the federal reserve uh and at this point you're going to get a job at one of the three and probably amazon will buy OnlyFans at some point too yeah, so well, yeah. and then start printing too. and then start printing their own currency so yeah <laughs> and then it's game over yeah <laughs> bezos bucks baby yeah, honestly, like it's so dark. Yeah, things are things are really bad. Like just with the world and like I guess like things have never been. There's not really many years where you can like look and say like, oh yeah, things were good. But like I don't know, things seem really bad right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to get on that. I'm really. Uh, we should not have have gone on that detour. That was just a really. <laughs> it's all right. Okay. No, I it's agree. Right. Things That's are bad we... right now. Yeah, we, we yeah. talk about it between ourselves like we talk about it like all the time so it's hard not not to think about <laughs> yeah well i mean you referenced the the stimulus as well and it's just it is really shocking that it seems like i mean definitely the republicans have just completely abdicated any responsibility to like help people in any way uh, except for that a, a little bit a month a few months ago and the yeah. sort of unemployment extension that that went on and then it's just been pretty much shut down I know Democrats have like proposed uh, plans to hope to you know get more money into people's hands and stuff, but just doesn't seem like they've put a lot of weight into actually pushing for this stuff. Um, and it's just kind of been kicked. The can has kind of been kicked down the road. Yeah, after the election, we'll figure it out. Meanwhile, there's there's millions of people literally that are, have have their lives and their livelihoods hanging in the balance. And it's just it's crazy to me that especially considering that like the Republicans are in charge of the, the federal government in the United States right now, how this election is still close in any way. <laughs> uh, like that, that to me is shocking that they've oversaw, they've overseen this, this massive, massive crisis. We know, like we know objectively that they've, they downplayed it and have made it worse in a number of ways. They've not made any effort to help anybody. And yet we're still looking at this like incredibly close down to the wire uh, election. Right. It doesn't really it doesn't really say anything good about the Republicans or the fact that the Democrats, this is their campaign and this right. is where it's led them. It's not well, great. And on that point, I think you have to look at just how rock solid the polling has been basically since the campaign began, since the general election began. You know, we've been seeing 
very little deviations one way or the other. I think Nate Silver said at one point it was the smallest convention bounce of all time for Trump. So, you know, when you look at things like the 76 election, or not 76, I think I'm thinking, oh yeah, no, 76, the uh, huge lead that Carter had, the immediate swing right at the end, you know, you see this kind of dynamic where a huge portion of the electorate really were undecided or median voters that could be won by either side. You know, obviously that hasn't been true for a long time, but where we are now, this is one of the greatest crises in American history, and it appears to have a almost negligible effect on the polling. You know, it certainly is the reason why Biden is winning. And I think without it, Biden would be very clearly losing to Trump just based off of, you know, historical evidence, how incumbents usually do. But what we're seeing is, you know, reality has almost fully untethered from the actual political opinions of most Americans, certainly from the priors that they're dealing with and the way that people make up their minds with voting. You know, all these people who are talking about, oh, the Supreme Court thing is really going to shake up the race. Polls are showing less than 9% of voters are still undecided. You know, how much shaking up is there really left to be done here when you consider just how locked in most people's votes not, not only are, but were as of two years ago? Jordan, don't we have some breaking news about polling you were talking about? Do we have oh, some, uh, some breaking news here? Can't be too specific. I mean, I don't know if it's like internal or, or just just people that I know um, in a professional capacity. You're concerned about Michigan and Pennsylvania and Biden's numbers there, uh, shaky in Minnesota as well. Um, and it just seems like these key battleground states um, aren't really these locks that we were promised they would be or like you know the stable footing that we were told biden would have beyond any like it, it, um in a way that no other candidate or primary candidate specifically bernie could match doesn't appear to be the case doesn't that that theory does not appear to be panning out and that's that's troublesome well that's um, interesting especially considering michigan i mean biden did just get that that really crucial rick snyder endorsement which i thought was going to lock up the state for him so that's that's surprising <laughs> that that didn't that hasn't paid yeah, dividends yet <laughs> can't believe the guy who poisoned his residence uh, endorsing yeah. Biden didn't pay di- yeah, pay dividends there. So, I'm going to fire up the base with that one. <laughs> the, the, the huge Rick, that's actually a thing I think about sometimes is like, like, you know, in the, like a few decades ago, like there were like specific politicians with like huge followings because you had like, you know, favorite sons, stuff like that. But like, who is the John Kasich demo? Like, who's like the guy who says like, yeah, I'm going to vote however John Kasich says. You know, I was going to say there's a family member of mine who I won't name, of course, but uh, just by way of reference, once described himself as a Colin Powell voter. And I said, oh, you're the one. That's you. <laughs> yeah. You're the you're the you're that one Colin Powell voter on planet Earth. <laughs> Although I will say like Colin Powell, like we did have like a pretty big following. But like imagine doing that for um, who who are the. Who, who were like the, the Republicans that they had at the D like it was like Christine Todd Whitman who had been briefly EPA uh, administrator under like for two years under Bush. And it's like, I, I think fundamentally like a lot of, you know, democratic consultants, and I think democratic consultant is like a synonym for like, uh, like the lowest type of person. I, I can't, but um, no, I'm, I'm joking. But um, like a lot of democratic consultants, like they, um, you know, they, they approach the electorate as if it's like a bell curve where you have like, you know, some people at the outer edges on the right and the left. And then you have people at, um, 
you know, a huge number of people in, in as, you know, who are centrists or who are in the ideological center. But I think that, you know, the reality is, and it's like the more, more accurate, I, I should say, is that you just have, you know, a huge number of, of partisans now. And then you have a huge part of the population that, you know, has very weird, ill-defined views. I mean, Henry and I, we, we, we joke that they're, you know, the, the Joe Rogan uh, voters, since it's like, you know, they don't have in, in ideology either way, you know, and, and to, to try to appeal to them by, quote unquote, going, you know, going to the right or going to the center like Biden did. Like, there's no one who's actually there. Like, that's not how it works. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, yeah, the, the Democratic Party, like, 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 it just, you know, I, I'm, I'm really sad to say that uh, they, they are, they have yet to, to show that they're uh, up to the challenge of, uh, of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my concern, like watching this kind of stuff. It's like, we're in a historically catastrophic moment, right? We're in massive, like a, a moment of massive job loss, a mass casualty event. We're in a global pandemic. And we're in an election year against what, you know, this guy is, is brazenly corrupt. Um, he, you know, he, he's like <laughs> exerting the, the power of the presidency to, you know, uh, do <laughs> his personal bidding through the DHS uh, and, and uh, DOJ. Like that Kent Klippenstein has reported on extensively in, because the military wouldn't do that kind of stuff for him. Um, it's, it's extremely dangerous. And the best resistance that we can muster is um you know kind of a a meager uh condemnation from congressional uh democratic leaders that's that's really really frustrating frustrating and 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 maddening so like like last week on um even just like aptitude and sharpness i think is really is really interesting because if anybody else in any other job capacity um, let's just say you're a, you're a teller at McDonald's or you're, you're a cashier at McDonald's and someone comes in and asks you a question about the menu and you just don't answer. You just say, good morning, Sunday morning. Like your manager <laughs> would rightfully be confused and wonder what the hell was going on. But because yeah. this person is speaker of the house, you're just like, how dare you? Well, how I, dare you criticize her? Right. And maybe let's take that example further. You know, and this is a reality and, and people talk about ageism in this respect. And I think that it's worth mentioning that it's not mm-hmm. always because of actual capabilities but certainly mm-hmm. with things like retail it trends very young you know the reality is the worse the job is the less stable it is and the less power it has the younger it's going to trend and the right. jobs you're talking about that require that basic competency that every day on the you know on the ball uh, acumen at the end of the day to be a senator it requires basically none of that you know, the basic <laughs> competence required to be a U.S. senator, I would say, is drastically less than most entry-level service jobs, maybe all entry-level service jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, senators are essentially like mech suits that are piloted by all the people around them. And, I mean, these people are forgetting hearing rooms. They're being piloted around. You know, there's obviously a lot of lenses you can look at the present moment from, but one of them is justifiably gerontocracy, you know, ruled by the oldest people. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day... When you look at the average age of the U.S. Senate, not only do you see that reflected, but you also see a lack of connection between those people and their basic ability and under, you know, ability to address the current moment and the fact yep. that they hold their position. The factors that would allow them to be 
good at doing their jobs and the factors that allow them to hold them are completely different. Yeah, it's just you also had that the, incident the other day. I believe it was Rep, Representative Jerry Nadler appeared to have some oh, kind of accident yeah. on camera, and it's like this gives me a lot of confidence in, you know, the, listen, in the the brave I, political I, uh, actors that are that are governing the United States, the I, world's largest superpower. You know? I wish not to speak ill of Jerry Nadler, but one thing that I will say is that I really do think that. In some sense, I, I don't want to say you can't say it's their fault because I do think it is their fault for, for holding on to these chairs until they die, you know, for no other reason than their egos. But one of the realities is they fundamentally don't have the tools to understand the present moment. You know, you see things like this Diane Feinstein statement the other day, statement the other day about the filibuster. You know, they live in the Senate of the 1970s and 80s. They live in the world of yeah. bipartisan compromise on you know, entitlement reform with Ronald Reagan. That's the way that they envision government. And and first of all, that is itself a broken, broken and sclerotic model, but it also doesn't even work today. You know, at the end of the day, not that you can't blame them, but that really is what informs everything they do and how they think. No, and, yeah. and it's like, I, I remember reading this, this is probably two years ago, so this this it's probably even worse now, but the average age of an American uh, senator is now higher than the average age of the Soviet Politburo in, I think, 1980, 1985. You know, the, 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 one of the classic signs of, of the decline of the, of the Soviet Union was that their leadership class was this, you know, group of incredibly old people who had been in government for decades. And that, that's what we have now in the Senate. I mean, it, it's hard to find a better, you know, symbol of, of just how just how fucked we are as a country. <laughs> yeah, or like you talk about climate change specifically, and it's like it's no wonder that they can't seem to like wrap their minds around proposing policies that are supposed to, you know, impact the the world and the the future of America from decades from now. Because it's like they can't even think they're so fucking old that they're they're you know they're going to be so long gone by the time any of these effects really uh, uh, come yeah. into effect well, that it's like no wonder that they can't wrap their minds around this. Well, you know. I want to give me a quick moment here to plug Mike Gravel. You know, he is yeah. 90 years old this year, 90 years old. And everything he does and thinks about is about political change in a future that he's not going to see. You know, it yeah. is very rare to find someone at that age, at that level of not just experience, but when you've seen that much of the world, of course, your positions and views harden. You know, you've seen so much, you assume you can't be wrong. You assume you must really understand how the world works. But, you know, Mike does not work that way. And and in every political campaign he's ever run through 2020 and through today, the amount of leeway, the amount of space that he's willing to give, not just to that he might be wrong, but also that he might not understand the way the world works today. That is incredible. And it's been so heartening for me to see because he is older than all these people we're describing by a good deal yeah. in some cases. You know, even if Biden wins and serves eight years, he would leave office younger than Mike Gravel is now. And I will say, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about Biden and his mental state. But the number one reason for me is I spend so much time talking to Mike, who is substantially older than Biden and in every way sharper, more on point, which is concerning. It's concerning because I know that getting up to that age doesn't by default make you that way. Mm hmm. It, it is helpful that, like, Biden was kind of, like, famously dumb already. 
Mm-hmm. Like, like no, yeah. no offense to Joe Biden, but like he was not. I, I remember reading this in like some memoir of like an Obama staffer. I think it was like an excerpt in the New York Times or something. But it was like they would hold meetings in the White House. And, you know, Obama, he's like a pretty like, you know, on like he's he's like very business like in his approach to it. So they were having this meeting and then they would they would turn to, to Biden and Biden would just say like some random thing about, you know, uh, an unrelated topic. And it's like but that and that was him before like a pretty obvious, you know, mental decline somewhere between 2016, uh, 2016 and now. And it's like it is very unfortunate that even in the event that Biden manages to beat Trump, which I think is probably the, the likelier scenario. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to think. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not interested in like, uh, you know, in, in predictions about it that, that much. But like even if even if he wins, we're going to have four years of a president who I think everyone will know is like basically run by, you know, run by staffers. Yeah. Well, and sorry, well, that's just, the thing. I mean, at least Biden, as, as famously dumb as he may have been, he could string a sentence together like quite recently. And this is an ability that seems to have declined a lot over the last. I remember years. watching him in in 2012 with Paul Ryan. I thought he did yeah. really well in that debate. Right. Yeah, I remember well, watching that live and being and thinking he did a great job. I mean, that yeah. was like that was kind of the last time I remember looking at Joe Biden being like, "Hey, this guy's all right." You know. Well, and and adding to that, you know, Trump's line of attack at Biden has very much focused on this idea that he's run by staffers. But the the great irony is that he says, "Oh, he's run by Ilhan o- Ilhan Omar and Bernie Sanders and AOC. They're the ones only. steering yeah. him behind the scenes." It couldn't be further from the truth. In fact. Biden is run by really, in many ways, a cabal of some of the most entrenched interest groups and stakeholders in D.C., some of the oldest consultancies, some of the just most deeply embedded aspects of the Democratic establishment. And people who, you know, read what we were just saying in terms of not adapting to the moment, people who are dealing with mental models from three, four elections ago. You know, these are people who are less savvy and on point than certainly by far than the Obama campaigns were. And I think that's something that it, when you look at, you know, people like Pod Save, when you look at the reaction of ex-Obama staffers to the Biden campaign, they really do have to conceal their contempt sometimes for what seemed to me and I think everyone to be major unforced errors. I just saw this incredible stat just a moment ago on Twitter that was saying something like 340 million impressions on Trump-related con- or Trump specifically his content on Facebook in the past month, and less than 30 million for Biden. So a difference of 10 times in terms of Facebook yeah. engagements between Trump and Biden. Yeah. And it's it's like, yeah. when you think of the people behind Biden, it's like, you think of people who were like, kind of like obsolete back in like 2000, people like Bruce Reed, the, he was, um, he was the head of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was kind of at the center of the the kind of turn to the right in the late eighties and nineties, like he's, he's one of the guys in, in Biden's ear. And it's like, this is a guy who like, he approaches basically everything. Like it's like 1985 and he's working for Gary Hart, you know, it's like, like, and these are the people who are leading us who, who you know, in, in the better outcome, I, I should say of, of the election, it, like these are the people who are, who are, likely going to be leading us because I, I really like, you know, I, I, I hope that people are able to, uh, you know, 
push Biden to the left or, or, you know, influence him from the left or whatever. Yeah, and I think Biden is going to be a lot more susceptible if he wins to, um, you know, left influence than, than Obama was because he'll, he'll, you know, Obama kind of had the, the, the appearance of being like a kind of a, a consensus choice in 2008 and 2012, 2012 especially, I should, I should say. But like Biden, Biden's going to emerge as like a guy who, you know, is hated by 30, 35, 40 percent of the party. Um, and so, you know, I, I think Biden will be a lot more susceptible to influence on the left if he if he does win. But at the same time, like if you're not able to push him left in the election, I'm not sure what makes people think that they're going to be able to push him left when he's, you know, when, when his theory of, uh, of politics, you know, appears to be rewarded and he. He beats Trump on nothing more than, uh, you know, not being Trump. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and again, w- saying that his administration will be very much guided and led by the people around him, those people do not necessarily benefit from being particularly responsive to not just the interests of the left, but just the interests of anyone, you know, in a kind of active way. Once they make it there, I think that they see themselves – and, and, and have even explicitly talked about themselves as a caretaker presidency, as essentially just piloting the ship of state or even putting it on autopilot for four years. And maybe they'll do some trying to restore America's image or something like that. But in terms of anything really serious at the core of it, you know, I will say I think this total uh, jettison of really any meaningful resistance on the Supreme Court issue tells you everything that you need to know, which is that... That's been incredible to see. Right. Mm -hmm. Not only are they not willing to dig their heels in, but they're essentially setting themselves up to be incapable of really doing anything in a Biden administration. You know, Mm -hmm. in terms of taking action or even passing legislation, you know, people talk about a Biden win as if it's a 2009 moment, as if it's a trifecta, pass Obamacare kind of moment. In practice, by far the odds-on most likely outcome is that they lose the Senate and they can't confirm a single judge. They can't pass a single piece of legislation. And what we're looking at is is essentially another four years of gridlock. I mean, we could be saying, we've been saying for months now, the stimulus bill is locked up because of the dynamics in Congress right now. That could be four years that it's locked up with not one bill for stimulus. You know, if, if, if what we saw in March is the last stimulus this country sees, we are headed for a depression. That's not a really debatable point at, at this at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I mean, Henry would know the, the statistics on this perfectly. But like, if you look at, like, just the numbers on how people are doing in America, and I'm not just talking about, you know, mental health, but like, you know, just how they're living their, their lives. Uh, it, it's it's hard to say that it's ever been grimmer in the last few decades. I mean, you know, life expectancy was already declining. I think life expectancy has already been in decline the last uh, four, three, four, five years. Um, you know, because of you know de- de- deaths of of despair, and it's it's almost definitely going to drop even further now because of COVID um, by quite a bit. But like all the statistics on, you know, people moving back in with their parents, uh, everything like that, people who, uh, you know, basically for the rest of their lives, they're going to be consigned to, uh, you know, a life of, you know, misery and debt. Like that's going to be a huge, huge number of young people. 
I'm glad we've uh, pivoted to cheerier subjects. Yeah, yeah, because I was it was a little depressing at first, so I'm glad I'm feeling a lot more chipper now. <laughs> I mean, the, the one I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that this is the the upside, but like the the long term thing <laughs> is that you know famously the the boomers you know they they started off uh, a lot of them started off kind of someone on the left and then as they got older you know they turned into conservatives and we've a lot of people in america have made that into kind of a universal thing they say i'm sure you guys have heard the line that allegedly is from winston churchill but actually isn't uh, that you know if you're not on the left but at 20 then you have no heart and if you're not on the right by 40 then you have no brain but i think in reality you, what you saw is that you know, boomers were, you know, still are the wealthiest generation in the history of the world. Like there, there's been no co uh, cohort that, uh, you know, have matched the, the incredible wealth of American boomers. Um, and, you know, as they as they became wealthy and, you know, acquired assets, you know, they, they obviously moved to the right because it matches their their material interests. But like for young people now, and I when I say young people, like I, I don't just mean people who are you know, 20 or whatever, I mean, like, people who are, you know, well into their 30s, even early 40s now, like, it, it's very unlikely that they're going to get that um, ever. Uh, like, like the, I, 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 Henry, you would know the exact uh, statistic on this, but um, yeah, that the Chinese home ownership versus right, American. Right. So mo American millennials uh, own their own homes at a rate of about 3%. So about 3% of millennials own their own homes. Now, that's actually market cap averaged by equity, which basically means most millennials, because they haven't paid off their mortgage, own some percentage of their homes. So if you kind of aggregate that out, it's about 3% of millennials outright own their homes. It's not sort of a number so much as an aggregate measure. In China, that's about 35%. So about 35% of Chinese millennials own their own homes. There's a lot of reasons for that, obviously. But I think that tells you a lot about is there a generational wealth transfer taking place in this country? And the answer is not only that there isn't, but what a lot of leftists would tell you is, oh, well, generational politics or even just the language of generations is just this obfuscation. There is no such thing as the baby boomers. It's all just marketing bullshit that's meant to empower consultants to sell things to stupid marketing departments, which is like 80% true. But when you look at America today, the class divide is very often an age divide. And a big part of that is what David's talking about, that, that boomers are living longer by a great deal and that the kind of opportunity that created their wealth and equity no longer exists. And after 2008, the core source of equity in America, you know, the actual kind of way that American families build wealth, which is home ownership, has disappeared for nearly everyone you know, rates of homeownership have not just stagnated and gone down since 2008. I don't think they've increased in any year between either. So in reality, what you see is there is no ability to build the kind of year over year generational wealth that allows you to not just maintain your current position in the world, but to also pass it on to your children. That's something that's not available to anyone in America under 60 right now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, all of this impacts, you know, uh, huge, you, you see now, especially among young people, shocking rates of childlessness, you know, a, a, a dearth of any optimism. I mean, if you, if you compare, you know, American optimism about the future to optimism among young people in China, 
Like it, it, it's insane how poorly we're doing. Chinese young people are much more likely to have children, much more likely to express any sort of optimism about the future than American young people. So like it's it's hard to uh, you know it's hard to find optimism about about that whole situation. <laughs> And it's interesting, too, the way this gets framed in the West, these kinds of stories. I saw that story about like the Chinese poverty reduction and some of the efforts they've made in that area. And it's framed as this like nefarious plot to like make people like the Chinese government oh, yeah. by helping their citizens and stuff. And it's like, can you believe these evil, this evil Chinese government yeah, how, how, doing things yeah. for their citizens to like help improve their quality of and life? Even that, how, it's like, how, how, how dare they, you know, want, uh, you know, try to make citizens support their government. I'm sure we would never ever do something something no, so evil yeah. <laughs> and i you know i don't mean to give the impression that we're uh, you know diehard uh, china defenders i think that the point we're trying to make is that when you actually look at the u.s not from this parochial this is the most important election of our lives this is the decisive moment whether we slide into fascism or not listen i understand why people say that stuff i understand why they feel it certainly if you're watching msnbc on a daily basis that's how you're going to feel. But if you actually step back and look at the U.S. in a world historical way, look at it in comparison to peer nations, to China, the U.S. loses on average 1.5 years of life expectancy just to car accidents, violence, and suicides against other OECD nations. That's not a matter of you know, internal politics. That's not a matter of which party is in charge. That is a structural aspect of American society and culture. You know, those kinds of things, when you look at them, I think they, they let you understand and look at this election for what it is, which is important in some ways and certainly decisive in the short term. But in reality, just one more bump in a very long running decline that, that you can trace the origins of way back, way before our present moment. Yeah. And I guess it's disappointing that the whole primary basically boiled down to one candidate that was really trying to do something to stop that decline or try and reverse the course on it. Uh, and another candidate who's basically his whole role is just to kind of manage everyone's expectations downward. Um, and you saw young people, you've been, you've been talking a lot about young people and the problems they're facing. They all coalesced around the first candidate. And then you have the, uh, then you have the Democratic Party establishment basically coalesced around the second candidate and total, told all those optimistic young people to basically go fuck themselves. Um, so that's, that wasn't a great thing to, to experience vicariously. I think like, you know, the, 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 the ideal case with Bernie was that no, I, I don't think anybody believes I think he would have been very ambitious with like executive action. Like the fact is that in an instant, the president could cancel uh, a huge amount of student debt. And that would instantly in, in a second, that would have be a huge improvement for tens of millions of people, you know, make life markedly better. And, and that could happen instantly. I think Bernie, yeah, they, they were planning to do that. A lot of other stuff that they could just do by via, you know, executive action. I think a lot of the legislative stuff, you know, realistically, you know, they'd have probably be relying on like Joe Manchin or or, um, or uh, the uh, the senator from Arizona, uh, Cinema, uh, and so well, you know maybe <laughs> maybe they wouldn't have have gotten all of it done. But you know, the best case was that um, you know the best case was that they kind of just take some of the money that's being wasted on you know, a huge military budget, uh, or is, you know, not being taxed, uh, 
or is just being given to the rich in, in you know, various ways. Like, you know, it, it's kind of a cliche, but it, it is true that we have, you know, we have just an incredible welfare state, but it's only for the rich. Um, not only for the rich, but, it, you know, you can get a huge amount of government uh, of government money if you're, um, you know, if, if, if you're smart about it and, and, and you're rich. But, uh, you know, just taking some of that money and, and, you know, making life a little bit better, materially speaking, um, you know, for, for, you know, normal, for, you know, ordinary Americans, you know, like, I think the reality is that, like, for, uh, you know, for most Americans, like, life has either, you know, the last few decades has either not been getting better or been getting much worse. I mean, uh, the average hourly wage, I think it peaked in 1974, 1973 or something like that. And like, you know, since then, uh, you know, we're, we're really into um, Robert Brenner, who's a really cool, um, you know, Marxist uh, economist. You know, you, you, you've seen basically a long downturn, like, you know, we are, you know, we are in a, in a declining country, you know, our, our system of production is, is in very obvious decline. Um, I think the only real question is, is like, what can you salvage from that? And, and you know, the possibility of, of building the, the early features of, um, you know, some, some new, you know, more, you know, you know, better uh, system of production. But, uh, you know, of course, like Joe Biden, you know, even even if his presidency would obviously be better than than one from Trump, like there's no question that that not only would he never do anything like this, but, you know, these questions just never they just never occur to him or, or anyone who works for him. I mean, these, these are, you know, no offense, but these these are not like the, the smartest people. You know, I mean, it's yeah, just, they're, 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 we're failing to um, in mass recognize and contemplate why 100 million people didn't vote in 2016. And Ilhan Omar had a good column in the Washington Post last week talking about this. And we saw this kind of just bubble up again the other day when, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett was was announced as the, the nominee. And it, it as we talked about earlier, it's become clear that the Democrats aren't going to do anything. There are cards that they could play that would shut this down for the foreseeable future. They could impeach Barr. They could impeach Trump. That would stop. That would bring things to a grinding halt in the Senate uh, in a way that procedural roadblocks that this, that the Democrats are going to do can't do. That really only delays it by a week or two and brings it closer to the election. Um, but they're not willing to do that. And the response from liberals was to blame Jill Stein voters. Well, in Michigan, it was, what, 50,000 Jill Stein yeah. voters? and. Uh, like nationwide, it was several hundred thousand, but millions of people voted for um, Gary Johnson and and in liberal darling resistance darling Evan McMullen. Um, yeah. Those names never get mentioned. But why aren't a hundred million people voting? We never want to talk about that, and it's because uh, usually these are not like you know leftists who who hate the the establishment, and you know I'm going to protest by not voting. There are a few of them, but like, you know, statistically speaking, like the vast majority of people who don't vote are people who are, you know, extre uh, you know, pretty poor. They, you know, there's very little to, you know, I, and like, honestly, can you really yeah. tell them like, yeah, your life well, is going to get a lot better under Joe Biden? <laughs> well, and beyond just that, you know, there's this great book called Ruling the Void by uh, Peter Mayer about uh, European democracy. And one thing that he's positing is that 
the nature of these sort of mature uh, Western liberal democracies is that when they reach this certain stage, turnout collapses. And a big part of that collapse is this sense of sclerosis and apathy, particularly among the young. You know, maybe pivoting a little bit to what we're trying to do with the Gravel Institute, one thing that we think a lot about is what is that indicative of fundamentally? When young people drop out of the political process, first of all, and as David says, what are you going to tell them? This out, The outcome of this election is something that you're going to be able to feel in a way that you can very specifically, very proximately connect to the act of voting. You know, the only thing that I can think of is the stimulus, which looks unlikely or impossible at this point anyway, regardless of the outcome of the election. You know, when you look at why turnout really goes away, a big part of it is entrenchment. We talk about the difference between multi and, and dual party systems in America. We only have two. In Europe, often they have more. The thing is, even though they have more, they become so entrenched, so old, and so attached to the way that they operate that the choices between them become less meaningful and less differentiated, and the influence of the electorate weakens over those political actors themselves. In America, you can see research showing that individual Americans' viewpoints have next to no impact on what policy actually gets made. Here's something which I think speaks to this phenomenon. I was listening to The Daily, the New York Times podcast. They were talking about this Amy Coney Barrett Henry, Henry, that was your first mistake. Let me just... <laughs> That's my first and second mistake. But <sighs> sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're driving to the bagel store, you got to put something on, on the radio. Uh, so I was listening to it and, you know, he was saying, so they are being hypocritical. And he says, yes, this could kill Roe v. Wade. He says, yes. This could lead to a host of drastically unpopular decisions that would never pass in a democratic election and that will upset the vast majority of Americans. He says, yes. And he says, well, you know, but I, and then he says, well, this is how our system works. This is how the Constitution says it should work. And I was just thinking about that line. It, it is pretty poignant, right? It, stopping voting makes sense on some level as an act, as a rejection of a political order. And I think that's what is happening. It's gone way beyond anything like apathy or even frustration with the candidates themselves. It goes deeper and speaks to a sense that the political system itself is not a really democratic one. Uh, well, I mean, now that everyone's really fired up from listening to uh, this uh, this conversation, everyone's very <laughs> feeling very positive. Oh about yeah, everything. you got a title. Let's this, really title this episode "Doomer Talk." No, and, and, and I, I promise that like, you know, we're, we're like really like, we're, we're actually really like positive like guys. Like we're, we're really, you know, I'm sorry about that. We didn't mean it. Yeah. No, that seems clear to me. That's what I was, I, I agree. But let's, while we're, while, let's pivot now to talk a little bit about the Gravel Institute and shift things really into the next gear now. Um, uh, David and Henry, what can you tell us about uh, the Gravel Institute? What is it? Uh, how did it come to be? Why did you want to start it? And uh, and what are your goals with this uh, this new project? It's very, very exciting. Just launched yesterday. Tell us about the Gravel Institute. So the basic story is, you know, uh, one of the conditions for Senator Mike Gravel uh, agreeing to run in 2020 at the ripe age of uh, 89 at the time, one of the conditions for him agreeing was he said, I need you two to promise me that you're going to devote your lives to the same causes that I've devoted my life to, first of all, and that you don't stop here, you know, that this is not a one-off. 
sometimes people say, oh, David and Henry, they did this to get into college. They did this for... Honestly, we were already all, in college. And also, us, like, or, or I lost college, a lot of money doing, like... Yeah. Like, Wait, you mean lost, to tell me things people say about you on Twitter aren't always true? Yeah, that we can't lost, be right. We lost friends. We, That's we, crazy. We lost friends. We spent an extremely great deal of our own money and time. You know, it was not a net gain in, in, in those ways. And my least. mom was really mad at me. Henry remembers this. <laughs> she was a big Israel supporter. It caused a lot of problems. But so after the campaign was over, we were sitting there thinking, well, not only do we have this kind of platform, but also we have identified certainly a cohort of people. I mean, at first we said left of Bernie, right? That's what we are interested in, what we are looking at. But the more we looked at it, the more we realized the left generally, in a lot of ways, it lacks unity, but in another way, it lacks institutions. It lacks the kind of cohesive and long-running influence-mongering projects that the right has been building since the 60s. Things like the Federalist Society, things like PragerU, PolicyEd, the Cato Institute, these are in many ways, the actual engines of what the American state does. They don't look at people, or at least if they look at people, their view of them is always mediated through pollsters and institutes and think tanks. And so at first we said, well, we'll start a think tank, right? But as we kind of got into that and spoke to people like Matt Brunig about it, who runs the People's Policy Project, I think we realized that the really key disconnect is not, we can write the policy, but the question is, can we sell it to people? And more than that, can we sell it to people other than those that already agree with us and already have very deep reasons for liking everything that we put out there? What something like PragerU on the right does is it spends a very large amount of money reaching people who are starting to get interested in politics, but don't yet have foreign views about it. If you look at their website or their channel, Every video that they put out has a question like, was the Civil War about slavery? Or, or are Democrats the real racists? Or is the left really tolerant? That's the kind of thing, if you're a young person, maybe, you're typing into Google or YouTube, because that's what you're asking yourself. You want the answers to those questions. And if you watch PragerU, they call themselves a university. They have very official-looking professors in suits. It's very slick. It's very produced. And they tell you lies. They will give you an answer that serves the interests of PragerU's backers, the largest of which are petrochemical companies. And, you know, uh, I, not, to, not to get too deep into it, but, uh, you know, the conservative influence machine. Sure. What we realized is the left fundamentally lacks anything that works the way that that does or that works the way that other influence groups on the right work. What we don't have is something that goes beyond serving the interests of an individual on the left. Not, you know, not to impugn podcasts, which I think are a good medium, but they very much serve the personal brands and the people on them, right? Except for this I think it's the highest form of political activism, personally. Well, yeah. you know, that's <laughs> no, but opinion, we should make You can disseminate we've information. Said, except, <laughs> except for insurgents. I mean, we've always except said for okay. insurgents. Yes, thank you. But thank you. It, yeah. yeah, except for the podcasts that we like. Yeah. But the, the difference, yes. though, is that what you can do is build an audience. You can get people to do things, but you can't serve the interests of the whole left. And not just of the whole left, but serve it in opposition to and as directly opposed to the same sorts of projects from the other side. And the thing about those projects, as cringy as people think they are, and a lot of people said that, why would you make a PragerU? That's so cringed, not based, not poggers, etc. You know, when they say Whoa, these not things, poggers, okay. You know, yeah, I, the, mean, I can't have that. At the end of the day, cringe as it is, this shit works. And one mm -hmm. thing we did early on. 
I'm not going to admit to wire fraud on this podcast, but I will say through various means, <laughs> we acquired various documents detailing how PragerU works and what totally, it does. Totally legally. No, like nothing. By, we did nothing under wrong. Under completely sure, yeah. legal means and in Minecraft. And uh, they raise <laughs> about $20 million a year, $10 million of which goes to social media advertising. They're getting something like 1.5 to 2 billion views a year. One in three American voters has seen them. 70% of those people have uh, said that it changed their mind about an issue. And beyond that... And as you pointed out too, it's not presented in any way like it's an ideological no, project. No. It's and, like the, where this is like objective information and just simple right. to and, understand and, and digest. People, people don't understand just how huge the ambitions are. They want to own the internet. They would buy Facebook if they had the opportunity to. They have a program on their website, the PragerU Legacy Project, where you can put them in your will and have PragerU inherit your fortune so that they can use it to keep spending on pushing young people to the right. And the thing is, there is nothing like this on the other side. There's certainly nothing like this from the Democrats or from Pacronym or from any of these huge digital spending groups on the left. They're more interested in Facebook ads about how cool and awesome the uh, Democratic Avengers are and how uh, you <laughs> Ooh, should really like be into idea. Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. You know, this is what they spend their money on. But the Kamala right- Harris wears really cool footwear too, as yeah. well. That's a, that's oh, another look, thing. Nancy we need Pelosi, to- I wear she's shoes a too. queen. I'm sorry, guys, but you know, <laughs> yeah. she-, <laughs> she claps. Right. So, so it's tremendous for us. It's that lack of parity that required something like this to exist. And and to be mm-hmm. honest with you, we did not expect what happened the other day. I mean, we did not expect to see that level of support. We are more than triple our best case scenario. Uh, in amazing. terms of how far we've come in only about 24 hours. And what it's proven to us is, damn, there were a lot of people sitting there like us and agreeing something like this really needs to exist. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Uh, I mean, I hear in the spaces that I operate, everyone wants to recreate um, the Drudge Report of the left. And I think there's a utility in that. But the way people use the internet, especially right now, just doesn't really require that there I, I just don't see the necessity anymore for an aggregator everyone's trying it drudge is just like you know it's an old internet you can't replicate even that style of website the I, way it is right just plain like, links I don't get the like i don't get how drudge is like so huge i've been on drudge and it's like just an awful website like what <laughs> the heck like it's just it's it's name recognition for old people. Well, does that have any influence whatsoever anymore? I feel like this talk about being stuck in the politics of the '90s. That seems a lot like right. it. Like, oh yeah, this is the new hot thing. It was the new hot thing twenty five fucking yeah, years ago. Yeah, it's like yeah, this website that yeah. broke the Lewinsky scandal. Yeah, I mean, and, and so it's like I, I think just broadly, like, and, and there's like a thing with all of politics is that you know ninety ninety five percent of people are are fighting the battles of five ten fifteen years ago i mean we we always think of this with um you know pete Buttigieg. the the joke that we have is that you know like he he crafted his perfect plan uh to become president when he was at harvard like two thousand four two thousand five so he thought oh you know i gotta be a veteran i gotta uh i you know i i gotta move back to the rust belt yeah. i gotta become mayor of this small town and then then i'm gonna you know build on up from there he was thinking in a 2004 mindset and then he runs in 2020 and he does pretty well because he is, you know, he appeals to a certain demographic, but like fundamentally he like, he was, you know, he was 
kind of existing within a world of, uh, you know, of, of the past. And I think that that's just broadly the story of, of so much of the Democratic Party. I mean, I forgot who pointed this out, but like it is really important, you know, that Chuck, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, the entire leadership of the Democratic Party, you know, Joe Biden, they all entered politics in the 70s and 80s. That's where their, you know, fundamental ideas about politics were shaped. And that was the period of, you know, of, of basically a, 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 a surging right. Right. And, and, and a need for Democrats because they were so on the back foot to take this role of broker or take this role of – and listen, I, I would not say that this is – I'm glad that they did this. You know, this is just the reality of the politics at the time. They took on that role of being the bipartisan compromisers, being the Tip O'Neill's. You know, that's the kind of theory that they had and have. And it's one reason why I think they're so fundamentally bad at wielding power is that the ideology that they still base their playbook on was fomented in a moment where Democrats were in the opposition and they don't really know how to do anything but make deals with a ruling conservative party. And the problem is that ruling conservative party is no longer even interested in making those deals. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the the frustrating thing watching the Obama era play out, frankly, because it seems like that was his whole strategy was to be this unifying figure, this post-partisan figure. And it was very, very clear by like 2010 that that was not going to work, that it was a completely different kind of opposition that was 100% dedicated to uh, stifling his entire agenda and destroying his legacy. And it seems like the Democratic Party has just never learned that fundamental lesson that that's the opposition that they're dealing with uh, and are still holding on to this this antiquated notion that they can uh, bargain and sit down in the smoke-filled room and hammer out an agreement. It's just this this has been off the table for a decade now, and it's crazy that they haven't realized this. They think that the world is, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, but like Mitch McConnell, like, you know, they're based, they're, so much of their of their theory of politics is basically reliant on, you know, Mitch McConnell at the age of like 75 or 80 or whatever, he's going to have a crisis of conscience and he's going to yeah. come, you know, come to, come to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, you know, hat in hand saying, I see the light, I see the light, we got to, you know... We got to uh, point <laughs> yeah. Merrick Garland to the court or whatever. He's going to yeah. say prudent entitlement reform. Yes. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. we got to cut benefits, but not by Wonderful. too much. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing I just wanted to mention on this point, and it, it speaks to what we're trying to create is at the end of the day, I think there's a, a tendency among those on the left to view these things in a totalizing way, especially when it comes to, well, the Democrats are the party of capital. They're the, you know, they're the organized base of capital. They're fighting on behalf of the capitalists. And in, in ways that this is true, this is true, but uh, on a deeper level, what you actually see is a bunch of sort of schizophrenic interest groups that have all their various interest packs and consultants and swing state elected officials and people who ultimately don't have a strategy. They don't have a plan. There isn't a secret room where they come up with, you know, how do we serve capital today? Often their interests are aligned with the rich and the powerful. Often they are listening to those people first and foremost, but not in a coherent and organized way. That's one thing that I think the left can actually have an advantage on the mainstream Democratic Party on. We have the tools now to coordinate and to build structures on the back end that allow us to have an actually coherent strategy 
in what we do, in what we prioritize, and where we put our resources. That's something that Democrats certainly don't do, and that the right it only is able to do because the source of the sources of all its money are so centralized. Yeah, and this, I mean, this is really the core, the core insight of, of Gramsci is that, like, you know, obviously people are, you know, kind of led by the noise by their material interests, but not in not in like really an obvious way, like you know, in a way that's kind of laundered through through ideology, and so uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of one of the core missions of the left. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of the, the broad mission of, of the Gravel Institute. Uh, Henry and David, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, kind of a, a grim conversation, uh, frustrating, but I think I that often leads to uh, action. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what pisses people off enough to get involved and start to take action and do new things and try, um, you know, tr- try out new endeavors. And that's what you guys are doing. So where can people find uh, the Gravel Institute and how can they support you? Yeah, so uh, what I'll say right now is if you're able to, if you're interested in this project, if you believe in it, if you want to get on board early, you can go to patreon.com slash Gravel Institute and you can sign up as a patron, whatever level you're comfortable with. We'll give you exclusive content. We'll bring you into our Discord, which has been going crazy the last few days and uh, you get to be in on the ground floor of it. If you're not able to do that or you want to see what we're doing first, you should go to our YouTube channel, The Gravel Institute on YouTube. Take a look at what we have out there. Subscribe. Help us get more subscribers than PragerU as fast as possible. And if you don't like either of those things, you can also follow us on Twitter.com, at Gravel Institute. And if you really don't like all of those things, you can email your displeasure to david at GravelInstitute.org. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it, it'll be uh... – you know, PragerU is huge. Unfortunately, we do not have uh, the benefit of you know being oil funded, but uh, you know it, it's kind of a delight to begin this uh, upward climb. You know? Well, David and Henry, we really appreciated you taking the time to come on the show and, and talk about this stuff to us. Uh, it wasn't always the most enjoyable conversation, but it was informative and stimulating. <laughs> uh, so thanks so thanks so much. It was great to have you, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having us. Wonderful talking to you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. So please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.